Father, thank you for this time that we have together. But thank you most of all that you've given us yourself in your Son by your Spirit. And we pray that now as we think about how we live in the light of the Gospel and how we live as Jesus is our King, that you will transform not only our minds but our hearts as we come to your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may know the name Johann Tetzel. You may not. Uh, but now you do. Johann Tetzel was a Dominican monk in the 16th century. Uh, and he is very famous, uh, at least amongst church historians, he is very famous, uh, because he was the person selling indulgences at Wittenberg when Luther uh, was uh, studying there as a monk and as the Reformation uh, was beginning to happen. Now, if you don't know about the selling of indulgences, an indulgence is a a sort of a letter from the Pope letting you off time in purgatory. So um, this needs some explanation. I trust that it'll be worth it. If not, well, you know, it might come up in trivial pursuit. You never know. So um, the, the sort of the medieval penitential system that built up was trying to handle the problem of what do you do with ongoing sin in the life of a believer? Now, this is an intensely pastoral question. It's a, as we saw in the last session, you know, most of us, I guess, you know, can relate to this in some way. You know, how do you handle the fact that you get your hands dirty living in the dirty world? How do you handle the fact that you keep falling down and sinning? And um, uh, in the Middle Ages, this system developed where um, you're born, you have original sin, and um, you get baptised as quickly as possible because that gets rid of original sin and you're put into a state of grace. And if you die in a state of grace, you go straight to heaven. Okay? So baptism removes original sin. But then what do you do with the sins that you commit, with actual sins that you commit? Well, um, what you need to do is to go to see a priest and confess your sin and receive absolution and receive the sacrament, particularly uh, the sacrament of Holy Communion. And this kind of purifies you. But it only gets you so far. It gets you away from the what are called the eternal punishments for sin, say, the, the judgment of, of going to hell. So if you, commit a, if you commit a mortal sin, and sins are divided up into different kinds of sin, we don't need to go into all of the detail. But if you commit a mortal sin in the medieval penitential system, you, you commit a mortal sin and you die with that sin unconfessed, you go to hell. But if you confess that sin and receive uh, absolution, that is forgiveness from the priest, if he pronounces over you that your sins are forgiven, then you will eventually get to heaven. But that was too easy. That didn't seem to motivate people to godly living. So the idea of temporal punishments for sin came in. So think about David and Bathsheba. Okay, David gets forgiven. You know, he doesn't get the kingship taken away from him. But the child born to Bathsheba as a result of their uh, night together dies. And there are temporal consequences for their sin. Okay, so you're a Christian, you you commit the sin of tax fraud. Okay, there are temporal consequences. You go to prison if you get caught. Okay, and this is part of God's judgment on sin. But, you know, you can receive forgiveness in Jesus and still go to heaven. Now, the way this ended up working out was that there's this idea of a thing called, a place called purgatory, where all, all of your temporal punishments, all of the sort of consequences of your sin get worked out before you're sort of purified, purged of your sin, and are ready to go to heaven. Okay? And um, purgatory is a place that people were expected to go to for a very, very long time. So a friend of mine um, happened to be in Rome. This is today. Uh, well, you know, in, in the last few years, he happened to be at Rome for a special mass that the Pope was giving at Christmas. He was in the crowd at St. Peter's Square. And as a result of being in that crowd at St. Peter's Square, he was given a million years off purgatory. Okay? So it's somewhere you go for a long time. So it's quite a scary thing. Okay? And, and an indulgence is like a piece of paper that tells you that you are um, given a certain amount of time of purgatory, or even you're allowed off purgatory altogether. A plenary indulgence gets rid of all years in purgatory, all temporal conditions of sin. It's, it's based on the idea that there's sort of a surplus of merit that the great saints like the Virgin Mary and others have worked up and that can be kind of doled out by the Pope. Okay, now if all of that's a bit confusing, don't worry, but the point of it is that there's this sort of sense that you have to do penance, you have to do things in order to put your sin right before you're actually ready to go to heaven. And purgatory is the place where anything you haven't worked off in this life is, 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 where, is, is, is where you go. 
And what Tetzel was doing outside the gates of Wittenberg was he was selling indulgences. They needed to build a new cathedral. Well, they felt they needed to build a new cathedral at Rome, what is now St. Peter's. It's enormous. You can imagine it costs a lot of money. Uh, And in order to raise the money to do that, they were basically raising money from people by selling years of purgatory. You can buy your way out. And Tetzel was a pretty crass salesman of this uh, sort of religious um, phenomenon. Uh, And um, he had sort of advertising jingles. When the coin within the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. You know, pop the coin on the drum and out comes mum. You know, it's that kind of thing. (laughs) And he had some fairly outlandish statements. He said, I can sell you an indulgence that will get you off the punishment for raping the Virgin Mary herself. And people were like, wow. Well, what about if I was to buy an indulgence and could it let me off sin I commit in the future? Tells him, yeah, of course it can. It can set you free from anything. You know, and then goes on with us. Listen to the dead souls of your ancestors weeping out in pain and purgatory. Do you not love them? Will you not buy an indulgence? Can I buy an indulgence for myself? Yeah, will it get me off stuff I don't think? Yeah. And so the story goes that someone bought an indulgence off Tetzel and then met him outside the town and beat him up and robbed him and said, well, you know, I'm already forgiven thanks to this thing I've bought from you. <laughs> okay, so a system that was designed to help people to live godly lives. That's the idea. And, you know, it's, it's a genuine, it's a pastoral, it's an attempt to handle this problem. If you're saved by grace, if Jesus has done everything, why would you live God's way? Actually became an excuse for sin. And this was the thing that terribly horrified Martin Luther. He was a man with a very tender conscience about himself and about others. And he realized that this penitential system hadn't brought about righteousness, but had actually given people a license to sin. So adding to what Jesus had done was actually taking away people's motive for living for Christ. And um, that's what I want to talk about in this next session. Is how the, the gospel of complete and free and total forgiveness in Jesus, how can that lead to a godly life? A life focused on Jesus. A life based on Jesus and lived for Jesus and for others. Well, this is why we're in the book of Ephesians. Let me just tell you a little bit about the shape of the book of Ephesians. Um, if, you, if you come with me to Ephesians chapter 1 and scan down through it, you'll see that what Paul does is he starts off with what is breathtaking. Literally, if you try and read it, it's breathtaking because verse, um, verse 3 through to verse 14 uh, is basically one sentence. So, you know, that's going to take your breath away. But when you read what he's actually saying, it does take your breath away. Because he tells you God's plan for the whole of the universe. Okay, and the way in which we have been caught up in it. And it's a prayer, really, of praise. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loved. Okay, so that is God made a plan before he made the world. He made a plan and that plan was to include you with Jesus and to make you a son with Jesus because he loved you. And that's his pleasure and that was his desire and that is what he has done. And he's given it to you freely. And just as an aside, you need to see that predestination has it sometimes become the idea that God chose us before the creation of the world. It's become a theologian's playground, something to sort of you know, battle words over and to sort of make into this kind of test of how clever you are at thinking about eternity and that kind of thing. The doctrine of predestination is not supposed to be a theologian's plaything. The point of you being chosen in Jesus Christ before God made the world... The point of it is, well, think of it like this. If you imagine you come home after, I don't know, running a marathon, say, and um, someone has drawn you a deep, hot bath, and it's full of radox, 
Okay, let's assume that you like Redox. And it's, a, it's full of Redox and it's steaming and it smells good and you know it's going to be relaxing and calming for your muscles. And um, you come to that. And what you don't do, or at least what most of us don't do, is start to perform forensic tests on it. You know, what is the specific gravity of this water? You know, just how much Redox is there in there? Let's send it off for chemical testing. I wonder what temperature the water's at. Let's get a thermometer. I wonder who it was exactly that ran it, and at what time did they run it? And for how long were the taps running? You don't do that. That's not the kind of investigation you make or something like that. You get in the hot bath, and you enjoy it, and you relax, and you go, oh, that hurts so good. <laughs> Predestination's like that. It is the hot bath that God has run for you that says, I loved you before I made the world. It's no accident that you have been saved. It's no accident that you're going to be with me for eternity. It's not something that you have kind of been lucky enough to stumble into and well done for making a good decision when you heard about Jesus. You've been safe from the beginning. I've loved you and you are mine. What are you supposed to do with that information? You're supposed to do what Paul does, which is praise God and say, wow, that is just beyond my understanding. How could I ever, ever come to terms with that? I don't know. But boy, is that a hot bath? Is that a relief? It's out of your hands. It's in his hands. And I tell you what, I tell you what, I feel safer in his hands than I do in mine. So, so much for predestination. It's a wonderful thing when you get hold of it the right way around. And a terrible thing when it becomes something that you just have to sort of grapple with and try and uh, sort of make sense of in your own terms. Okay? But that's what he's saying. He says that God's plan in the universe was to rescue you in Jesus, to include you and make, make you sons like Jesus to the praise of his glorious grace. So in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into their effect when the times have reached their fulfillment. He really, he's building it up and building it up, isn't he? To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That, in the end, is God's great plan. In history is to bring everything together under Christ, to make everything right again, to take everything that's wrong and turn it back the right way up and make it right and undo every wrong that's ever been done and wipe away every tear from every eye and to say this is how it's meant to be under Jesus forever for good. That is God's eternal plan to turn the universe the right way up, put it under Jesus and make all the wrong things right. And Paul says, we have been given access to that mystery. What is human history about? Now, I'm a historian. One of the questions that have been put in the box is, what's your PhD on? Uh, my PhD is in history. And I'm looking at the period of time around when Karl Marx was on the scene. Uh, I'm not particularly interested in Karl Marx, I have to admit. But, you see, Karl Marx is such an influential figure because he had an explanation for human history. He believed that he understood what history was about and why history moved in the way that it did and therefore he felt he could predict the future. Okay, that's a pretty breathtaking project. He says it's all about the means of production. That's the thing that drives everything. It's all about the means of production. In the end, the proletariat will seize control of the means of production and the world will be run for the benefit of the proletariat and it will be paradise. And it is the fact that he thinks he understands human history that makes Marx such a powerful and interesting figure. Able to, his thought, able to dominate so much of the world, even today. But Paul tells us, no, let's, let's see what God thinks history is about. And God says human history is not about a sort of process of materialistic dialectic, as Marx says. It's about Jesus. And it's about everything being brought under Jesus and everything being put the right way up. Okay, now this is his preamble to a book in which he says, flee from lust, stop lying, don't commit violence, don't steal. Okay, he's got plenty of things to tell us about how to live the Christian life, but he's showing us why. 
Okay? And what he does is in chapter 1, he tells us again, in chapter 1 through to chapter 2, verse 10, he tells us the gospel. And then from uh, chapter 2, verse 11 through to the end of chapter 3, he tells us a bit more of the gospel. And then from chapter 4, verse 1 through to the end of chapter 6, he tells us how it is that the gospel then shapes the way that we live with other people. Okay? So the book of Ephesians is a book about the gospel and then how the gospel transforms you. So chapter 4, verse 1, as a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What's the calling you've received? To be part of what God is doing in Jesus Christ, of bringing everything together under him. That's your calling. You are part of the most breathtaking thing that has ever been undertaken. You have been privileged to be drawn into God's plan for the universe. So then, this is how you live. Okay, but it's the gospel that drives you there. So, costs and benefits of living as a Christian. I wonder what you think the cost of being a Christian is. Jesus said, didn't he? No one goes to war without first considering whether he's going to win. No one builds a tower without first considering how much it's going to cost him. So it is with you. Don't come into this without considering what it's going to cost you. What is the cost of being a Christian? What do you lose? Do you lose your freedom to do as you want? Do you lose your freedom to enjoy the good things of this life in the way that other people seem to be free to enjoy them? You know, you live in a world that is full of all kinds of pleasures that beckon to you. The freedom to live for self, to use other people for your own sexual gratification, to drink too much, to eat too much, whatever it might be. What is the cost of being a Christian? Is it that you lose the freedom to indulge your own particular sets of lusts and passions? Is the fact that to become a Christian means to turn away from sin a cost of the gospel. Now I think it's tempting for us to believe that it is. That a godly life is part of the cost of being a Christian. And I want to tell you this morning that a godly life is part of the benefit of being a Christian and not the cost. So come with me to chapter 2 verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So God, remember, predestined us to be included as his sons. And there are good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do too. A godly life is part of the benefit of the gospel. It's what you're created for. God has redeemed you. For good works. They're not drudgery. They're not some painful thing. They're a blessing. Why would that be so? Why is that the case? Well, think about it again. God's plan for the whole universe, God's plan for blessing and goodness, is to bring everything under, under Jesus Christ as its ruler, as its head, as its king. And that includes you. Come back with me to Genesis chapter 3. And if it hasn't yet, I think it'll all start to swim into focus. Okay, so context from chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Genesis is that God has made a world that he's delighted with. Every day, he looks at what he's made, and it's good. And then as the climax of his creation, he makes man and woman in his own image. And it's man in his image, and woman in his image, and them together in his image... And then verse 31 of chapter 1. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. God looks at his creation and it's delightful to him. And it's delightful to Adam and Eve. So look with me at chapter 2 at verse 8. Now the Lord had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havila where there is gold. 
the gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. But you see, God puts Adam and then Eve into this garden that is beautiful and is full of trees that are beautiful. And the fruit of those trees is beautiful. And there's gold around and there are precious stones and there's a good relationship with God and a good relationship between the man and his wife. So that uh, when uh, God makes Eve and Adam wakes up, the man said, wow, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And it really is a kind of wow, this is wonderful moment. And they're naked and they feel no shame. They are completely at ease in each other's company. God has given them a good place to live and good relationships with each other and a good relationship with himself. He is generous and giving. And then chapter 3, verse 1, along comes a serpent who says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What is the first deadly question that gets asked of Eve? What is the beginning of all sin? God stinges me. God doesn't want you to have good things. Did he really say you can't eat anything from any of the trees? And his poison, even in verse 2, has begun to take effect. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And there you see it, she's added touch. He said nothing about touching it. But she's begun to think God is more restrictive than he is. He won't surely die, said the serpent, verse 4. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. God doesn't want you to eat it. Why not? Because he's scared of you. He doesn't want a rival. He wants to keep the really good stuff for himself. He knows that when you eat of it, you'll be like him. And he wants to keep the really good stuff to himself. What's at the root of sin? The idea that God is tight-fisted, that he is not loving, that he's self-interested, and that he wants to keep the good stuff for himself and not let it go to you. And say the woman sees that the fruit is good for food and pleasing to the eye, just like all the other trees also desirable for gaining wisdom for taking from God what is rightfully his and so she took some and she ate it and gave it to her husband and both their eyes were open they realised they were naked and there you get it they realised they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made covering for themselves and tried to hide themselves from God and from each other and their relationships with each other were broken and their relationships with God were broken and their relationship with the creation was broken to the extent that God says to the man by the sweat of your brow you shall eat your fruit, food it will produce thorns and thistles for ye And on the cross, Jesus has a crown woven of thorns rammed into his skull. Just to remind you what curse it is that he is under. But what's the point? Well, just see how reality gets turned on its head by the lies of the serpent. God is not generous, and there he is generous. God doesn't want to give you good things. God wants to give you nothing but good things. And so... In a world where it's supposed to be God first and then human beings ruling over the creation, you get the creation in the form of the serpent ruling over the human beings and them rebelling against God. Everything is turned upside down. And what's God's great plan? To turn everything back the right way up. Now sin. Is sin part of the world that way up or that way up? Remember, that way up is the wrong way up and that way up is the right way up. (laughs) For those of you listening at home. Which, which, which one of those things does sin belong to? The universe as blessed by God or the universe as cursed by God? Sin belongs to the cursed universe. Does, does sin rely on a right or wrong view of God? A wrong view of God. Sin comes in the end from thinking that God doesn't love me. It is a rebellion against the God I believe to be stingy and to want to keep the good things to himself. So, let's take some examples, right? The things that we might really think 
it would be great to have, but God doesn't want you to have because he doesn't love you. Right? Sex. Let's start there because in our culture, that's probably a really big thing. You know, um, certainly as a Christian at university, you know, guys in the rugby club, oh, you're a Christian. Oh, well, that means you can't have sex. That's terrible. You know, that's the first thing they go for. Right? Sex. Good or bad? Sex, good. Fire. Good or bad? Fire. Good. In the fireplace. On the sofa? Hmm. I know from painful experience that it is not good. <laughs> okay, fire is good where it belongs. Sex is good where it belongs. Who says where it belongs? God does. Sex with someone who's not my wife. Good thing or bad thing? Good for me or bad for me? Well, God says, bad for me. My culture might say otherwise. Who do I believe? Who's really concerned about me and my, and my welfare and my blessing and my benefit and, and the wider blessing and benefit of, of, of the world? God. You know, the culture at large cares not two hoots about my benefit and my welfare. You know, why do people push for free love? It's not because they think it's going to bring great benefits to the world. You know, of course not. It's because people want freedom to do what they want. But the idea that somehow this is a good thing that God wants to withhold from me is nonsense, isn't it? Absolute nonsense. And if you don't believe me, I will take you and introduce you to friends of mine whose lives have been destroyed by making mistakes in that area. Destroyed, I tell you. Okay? Good thing God wants to withhold from you. Don't believe it for a moment. Living just for me and not for anyone else. Good for me or bad for me? Keeping good things to myself. Is that going to, in the end, be to my benefit? Or to my harm? That's not going to be to my benefit, is it? Because that's not what I'm made to be like. Think about how God made people. To be in a right and uncomplicated relationship with him and with each other and with the world that he had made. If I turn in on myself and make life just about me and about no one else... I become a sad perversion of what I was made to be. And it cripples me. <coughs> and harms me and those around me. Sin a benefit? Come off it. Come off it. A godly life is part of the benefit and not part of the cost of the gospel. We've been remade to be free, to be who we're meant to be. And what you have to remember about sin is that the heart and root of sin is a lie. And first of all, it's a lie about God, and then it's a lie about yourself. And the lie about God is that he's not good and that he's not generous, and the lie about yourself is that you know better than him. my phone I'm really bad <laughs> nice isn't it when three customer services phone you in the middle of a talk and you realise you haven't put it on silent it's now on silent <laughs> okay so how does the cross then transform your relationship with God so that it is the relationship that it's meant to be well it sets you free from the lie that God doesn't want to give you good things it sets you free from the lie that you have to be out for yourself because, to be honest, if you're ever going to get blessing from God, you're going to pry it out of his cold, dead hand. Because at the cross, God has given you the one treasure of heaven. He's given you his own son. And so as God said to Abraham, now I know that you love me because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son whom you love. We can say to him, we know that you love us because you have given us your only son, whom you love. The gospel transforms my relationship with God and therefore that love that I then have to God because of the gospel, that transformed relationship I have with him flows not from some 
effort that I make in order to become a better person. It's not, it's not that the gospel comes to you and says, right, you need to start loving God, and that's the way for you to receive love from him. No, we read in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. No, sorry, I've lost it. It must be chapter 4, verse 19. Yeah, chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Okay, you gave us your son, and our response to him is one of love, because of the love that we have received from him. Okay, so the gospel comes and it tells you that God loves you, and that transforms you and sets you free to love God, for God. So Tim Keller uh, tells the story that he got from um, Charles Spurgeon. The story of the king and the carrot. Do you know the story of the king and the carrot? If you do know it, I won't tell it, but you don't? Okay, it's a great story. So. Here's what happens. The court is, is sitting, the king is there, his advisors are around him. And a rather dishevelled looking man comes into the courtroom. And he kneels before the king, dropping some dust and dirt everywhere. And in his hand there is an enormous carrot. And this man says, O oh, king, I love you. And I'm just a humble farmer, I don't have much land, but I grow carrots. And this is the best carrot I've ever grown. And I think it's the best carrot I ever will grow. And you're my king. And I want you to have it. Because you are a good king, and I love you. And the king takes the carrot, and he looks at the man. And he says, yeah, I know, I know where you're where your little patch of land is. And um, actually, I've got some land near there. It's quite a lot bigger than what you've got and, and, and a lot more fertile. Uh, but it seems to me that you could use it much better than I could. And you're obviously a trustworthy servant and you obviously love me. And I want you to have the land. It's yours. And the servant goes away rejoicing and the noblemen stand there and they're, they're sort of thinking, and one of them thinks to himself, well, look, if that's what you get for a carrot. <laughs> and he comes back the next day, and he comes in all his finery to the throne of the king, leading a horse. <laughs> it's a fine horse. And he says, hey, king, you know that I have some rather fine stables. This is my finest horse. <clears throat> this is the finest horse I've ever bred. And I think it's the finest horse I ever will breed. And you're my king and I love you and I want you to have it. And the king says, thanks very much. And there's an awkward silence. And the king looks at him. And he looks at the king. And the king understands what's going on. And he says, look, what you don't understand is that that peasant who was in here yesterday was giving me the carrot. But you were giving yourself the horse. Again, Spurgeon, in the sermon where he told that story, goes on to explain further. He says, look, when you feed the hungry and clothe the naked and give money to the poor, because you think that in doing that you will earn favour with God and make God love you and accept you more, you're not feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and giving good things to the poor. You are feeding yourself and you are clothing yourself and giving good things to yourself. You're doing it for yourself. You're not doing it for God and you're not doing it for them. You've already received your reward. But the gospel that tells you that God has already given you everything, the gospel that tells you that God already loves you as much as he could love you, that he could not love you more than he already does. He couldn't, you could not please him more than you already do because you're in Christ. That sets you free to love God for God. And that is the only love of God that counts. The Christian life, in the end... It's fundamentally a matter of love. Love for God and love for neighbour. 
Is that not what the Lord Jesus tells us? The greatest commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. The gospel sets you free to love like that. That is where all the good deeds that Paul is speaking about come from. And so that's what's going on in chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians, where Paul tells us that God has stuck you onto Jesus and raised you up with him. As he was raised from the dead, he's raised you from your death in sin to new life in him, to a life that is meant for righteousness and glory and already seated you at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms. He's done it. And the result of that is love for God and love for neighbour. Okay, so how is it that the gospel transforms your relationship with God? It says you've got everything. You're free to stop loving yourself in your religion. To do things just because you think you need to do them in order to prove something to God. No. And who but the coldest heart could fail to love a God who lavishes his son on you? Then when we look at um, verse 11 of chapter 2 through to verse 13 of chapter 3 of the book of Ephesians, what you see is that God has done something amazing in the cross in terms of relationships between human beings. Uh, He starts off by talking uh, about the relationship between Jew and Gentile, a relationship historically of hostility in chapter 3, where the Gentiles were actually excluded from the life of God, uh, and um, there is what Paul calls the dividing wall of hostility between them. Okay, that's in verse 14, verse 15 of chapter 2. And that dividing wall of hostility was a real thing in the temple. In 1871, a wall was found uh, in excavations in Jerusalem. And it had this inscription on it. Let no foreigner enter within the partition and enclosure surrounding the temple. Whoever is arrested will himself be responsible for his death, which will follow. Okay? Go beyond that dividing wall and you die if you don't belong. And Paul tells us, no, God has destroyed that wall. Verse 14, Jew and Gentile, what's happened? Well, God has brought them together in Christ. Verse 15, so remember, what's God's eternal plan? To bring everything in heaven and earth together under Christ. Say verse 15, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, that is Jew and Gentile, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near for through him we both have access to the father by one spirit okay so what's happened at the cross is god has taken us all and put us together in jesus and done away with not only our hostility to god but the cross remember goes sideways as well as upwards but our hostility to each other now think about what sin has done think about what happens in the garden, what's the first thing that happens when God finds Adam and Eve uh, after they've um, taken the fruit and eaten it? They're hiding from him, but they are alienated from each other. They've put on skins, they put on uh, sort of clothes made out of fig leaves to cover themselves, but they start blaming each other. Adam says, the woman you put here in the garden with me, she gave me fruit and I ate. He advocates all responsibility, all her fault. They're divided from each other. And it's even there in terms of the curse that's on them. Uh, the, the, the goal of marriage, which is to love and to cherish, is perverted into this idea of desiring and dominating in Genesis 3. You can go and look at it later. But actually the marriage relationship itself is, is shown to be just damaged and broken by sin no longer is there that that sort of freedom with each other even between adam and eve to start with what happens when they have children the first two children born become the first murderer and the first murder victim on the basis of religious jealousy cain kills his brother abel 
because God was pleased with Abel and not with Cain. Okay, our enmity with God uh, by sin brings about division between people. Now, that's true between individual people, and it's true between nations. It's true between Jew and Gentile. It's true in, in Northern Ireland and parts of Scotland and even parts of Merseyside between Protestant and Catholic. It's true between the West and the Middle East. It's true between uh, Palestinian and Israeli. It's true, I understand, um, in other parts of the world too. So uh, in China and Japan, I heard recently of a, a restaurant that opened in China and no Japanese guest was allowed to enter the restaurant unless they first signed an apology for their nation's conflict. Okay, nation is divided from nation. People are divided from people. Tribes within people are divided from, from other tribes within people. You know, the sort of whatever it is, you know, the Goths hate the emos or whatever. But in Jesus, we've all been brought together. And it's one of the most powerful signs of the gospel. It's an extraordinary thing. So um, a friend of mine uh, went to a restaurant with a non-Christian mate. And his non-Christian friend said pretty early on, as soon as they got in there, he said, they're Christians. Pointed to a table of people. How on earth would you know that? He said to him, what are you talking about? He said, well... Look at them. They don't fit. They don't fit with each other. But they obviously love each other. You know, they, they don't dress the same. You know how you can tell a lot about someone from the way they dress, from the way they look. So, well, you know, you've got, you've got the sort of sporty people with people who obviously read computer science. And... Um, <laughs> and... and People who are obviously sort of arty and trendy and kind of understand culture and stuff. Um, and yet they're all together. And getting on like a house on fire. So there's only Christians who are like that. Now, I, I'm sure you can find examples, you know, of, of, of other things that bring people together in that kind of way. And yet there is something incredibly powerful about the way that the gospel brings people together who would never belong together. Protestant and Catholic in Northern Ireland. I'll tell you about a man called David Hamilton who was converted in Belfast jail after a series of bombings that he had committed. And was converted in the most wonderful way as he smoked his way through the New Testament because the pages of Gideon's Bible are excellent for rolling cigarettes. Now, David Hamilton was a man of violence and hate. But some years after his release from prison, he stood on a stage with a, with a man who had been in the IRA and who had been that close to blowing David Hamilton's head off. If the gun hadn't jammed, he'd have killed him. And those two men embraced each other publicly as brothers in the Lord Jesus Christ, because this other man had, been, you know, had met with the Lord Jesus too. And those men who had hated each other to the core of their beings and devoted their lives to the destruction of people like each other, suddenly... There they are. Brother. That is the power of the cross. It is love that transforms. The love of God shown to us in bringing us together under Jesus Christ transforms people. Perhaps you know of Corrie Ten Boom, who sheltered Jews during the war, ended up in a concentration camp. Uh, she ended up in Ravensbrück concentration camp with her sister Betsy, who was beaten there and who died there. And some years later, she was speaking at... And, and by the way, I recommend um, her, her um, book, The Hiding Place, is one of those sort of incredibly powerful Christian books that's just the most wonderful thing to read. And at the end of that book, she describes how she was speaking at a Christian meeting. She sort of, you know, was speaking at all kinds of meetings after the war and talking about her experience of God's grace through this awful thing that she'd lived through in, in Holland and then in the concentration camps. And um, she was speaking, I think, in, in Germany. And afterwards, a man approached her. And she recognised him instantly as one of the Raffensbrück guards who had laughed as he beat her sister, who later died. 
And he held out her hand and said, Fräulein, it is most wonderful that God could receive even a sinner like me, isn't it? And she describes standing there, frozen and unable to move and thinking, what can I do? How can I forgive a man who did that? And then she said, by God's grace, my hand began to move on its own and reached out to take hold of his hand that was extended towards me. And as I did so, she described it as being like electricity flowing through her as she experienced the power of forgiveness that came to her through the Lord Jesus. She's been forgiven so much she could forgive. That is how the cross transforms your Christian life. Because what God does not hold against you, you cannot hold against anyone else. And the God who welcomes and accepts you freely and to whom you have nothing to prove sets you free to love him and to love other people. And so it is that Augustine, you know, perhaps the greatest Christian thinker since the writing of the New Testament, is able to say that this is how to live as a Christian. Love God and do what you want. This is what the cross does for us. So this is his comment on a passage of the New Testament that talks about these things. This we've said in the case where the things done are similar. In the case where they are diverse, we find a man by charity made fierce and by iniquity made winningly gentle. A father beats a boy and a man-stealer caresses. If you name the two things, blows and caresses, who would not choose the caresses and decline the blows? If you mark the persons, it is charity that beats, iniquity that caresses. See what we are insisting upon. That the deeds of men are only discerned by the root of charity. For many things may be, may be done that have a good appearance, and yet pre- proceed not from the root of charity, for thorns also have flowers. Some actions truly seem rough, seem savage. Howbeit, they are done for discipline at the bidding of charity. Once for all, then, a short precept is given you. Love and do what you will. Whether you hold your peace through love, hold your peace. Whether you cry out through love, cry out. Whether you correct through love, correct. Whether you spare through love, do you spare. Let the root of love be within. Of this root can nothing spring but what is good. Augustine's point is this. That actually a Christian life is only possible through the gospel. You can do things that look good for evil reasons. But the reasons are still evil and the effect will be evil. And you can do things that people will not like, but from the motivation of true love as given to you in the Lord Jesus. And the fruit will be good. You can't tell from what someone's actions look like on the surface what those actions really signify, what they really mean. Okay? So this is the, this is the, the thing we really need to get our heads around, is that The gospel changes you from the inside out. But the way we naturally think is that we change from the outside in. I want to be like a Christian. The first thing I need to do, we think, is to start acting like a Christian. And then the rest will follow. Fake it till you make it, right? But that is backwards. The love of God shown to you in the cross changes your heart. And that is what changes your behaviour. It changes your relationship with God, your relationship with others. And in the end, it changes your relationship to yourself. Uh, Look with me very briefly at chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians. We've looked at verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And he goes on into some detail about what that means. But basically, what he's describing is the process of letting the gospel reshape the way that you think. So I tell you this, verse 17, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality, 
so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. People are trapped in a futile way of looking at the world that is driven by desire and they cannot free themselves from it. But you, verse 25, must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbour. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that we may have something to share with those in need. Now, what you need to see is that the way that you relate to other people, in the end, comes to who you think you are and how you think about yourself. Are you a slave to lust? Are you a slave to desire? That will affect the way you treat others. Instead, you need to learn to put off the old and put on the new self, which is made to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Who do you think you are? If you're a Christian, the old is gone. You are a new creation. As Paul says elsewhere, you're a new creation, the old has gone and the new has come. You have been created for perfection and righteousness. Ephesians 24, Ephesians 4 verse 24. You have a new self <coughs> created to be like God. God has taken you and put you the right way up. And put you into a right network of relationship with other people and with himself. He's brought you together with everyone else and put you under Jesus. That's who you are. That's what you're for. That's what you mean. It's not about your achievements. It's not about your failures. In the end, it's about Jesus. So what does an authentic cross-centered life look like? It looks just like that. A life with the cross at the centre, with Jesus at the centre. Where I stop thinking that it's what I have done, what I have achieved, what people think of me that matters. And realise that God has done everything for me. It's Jesus that matters. The Bible is a big book and it's about Jesus. It's not about me. And my life is a big book. But in the end it's about Jesus. Me being brought together with everyone else under him. That's the plan of the universe and that's the plan of your life. That's the meaning of history and that's the meaning of your biography. And that sets you free. It sets you free. You've got nothing to prove. You have nothing to prove to yourself or to anyone else or to God. And say you're free. Genuinely free. To love him. And to love each other. And not in the way that people around the world talk about it, but actually free to love and accept yourself as well. To say it's okay with me, as the old hymn puts it, it is well with my soul. Not because I've got everything right, but because Jesus has. I'd like to pray, and then I've got some questions that you've written down, and you may have some questions that you'd like to ask. Gracious God, it is a hard thing for us to shift to a way of thinking that sees that we have a new self that's been given to us, created for righteousness and holiness. To have a view of history that doesn't have ourselves at the centre but has Jesus at the centre. To have a view of our lives that doesn't have ourselves at the centre but has Jesus at the centre. And we pray that in your mercy and by the power of your spirit you will transform the way that we think. Free us from the futility of sinful thought and set us free by the power of the cross, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So I've got a part.